It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson's here. We've got questions from our audience. But before we get to those, I can't believe it. There's another flaw in Java. Details next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. It's time for Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 393, recorded February 27th, 2013. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 162. Security Now is brought to you by Man Packs. Manly goods on a schedule. Get started today and have underwear, socks, toiletries, shaving supplies, and more delivered to your door. Visit manpacks.com slash twit and get $10 off your first order of $30 or more. Or buy a $50 gift card for $40. Manpacks.com slash twit. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security and privacy and everything else you need to know to... Stay safe online with this man right here. We call him the Explainer-in-Chief, Mr. Steve Gibson of GRC.com. Hello, Steve Arino. Hey, Leo. Great to be with you. Episode 162. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> question. Yeah, question Q&A and answer 162. Yeah. yeah, Q&A 162. Um, we've got so much to talk about sort of toward the top of the show um, that I'm not sure how many questions we'll get to. We've got 10 plus a bonus question wow. uh, this week. Some interesting, fun things to talk about. So we'll just do, you know, 90 minutes worth of stuff, starting with uh, news and updates and so forth and and play it by ear. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. We have some visitors in the studio. Lyle's from Nashville. James from Bloomington, Indiana. I warned them. I said, are you ready to get geeky? They put on their little pointy hats. <laughs> <laughs> they're re- <laughs> they're ready to go. Actually, uh, James is an IT guy at uh, Indiana. Is it Indiana University? Yeah. And uh, and uh, Lyle's with Cisco. Works with Cisco. Did you see oh. the small town that has a thirty thousand dollars Cisco router? Did you see that story? Just ridiculous. Oh. So um, like so total overkill for what the town needed. There's four hundred people in the town. <laughs> they have a a shack for a library with one internet connection, and it has a massive Cisco switch in there. Uh, and the reason is they went to Cisco. The state, uh, I'm got to find this story. The state went to Cisco, and Cisco said, "Yeah, you need all this stuff." <laughs> they just <laughs> just threw it at him. Uh, um, it, it's a really kind of an amazing story. I'll see if I can find it uh, while uh, while we're talking. I just read it this morning, and I should have bookmarked it fool that i am but you've got plenty to talk about so well you have an amazing story and uh, for the top of a podcast we have an unbelievable story only because it is too believable uh-oh by the way it's too... west virginia it's ah. it's a, a small town in west virginia i just found it it's an ars technica <laughs> one room west virginia library has a cisco 3945 router it's a twenty thousand dollar router it's a uh, it's in a temporary building. It turns out, in fact, the state's legislative auditor found this. There were it's a town, the small town of Clay, West Virginia, has seven seven 
3945 routers serving 491 people. $100,000 was the Cisco routers within 0.44 miles of each other. <laughs> <laughs> this is the best routed city in America. Oh, goodness. Um, yeah, I guess uh, it was uh, Cisco's uh, sales guys that uh, convinced the state to buy $24 million worth of Thirty nine forty five branch routers, unbelievable. Wow. You could you you couldn't even saturate one of them. No, <laughs> no. So, your story now. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Believe it or not, Leo, we have two new Java vulnerabilities. What? No, that's not possible. We fixed Java just the other day. Yes, we did. <laughs> and the day after, two new ones were found. Um, a pair of newly detected flaws in Java can be exploited to allow attackers to bypass the browser plugins oh. sandbox security oh. feature. So so it gets out of the Java sandbox, which of course is now the goal of any exploit. Um, it affects the most recent Java update, which is seven Java seven update fifteen, <laughs> which was released on February nineteenth. So here we are Eight Nine days later. days later, on the twenty seventh, and actually, this is two. This news is a couple days old. So, um, and Java six is not affected. So, oh, so it's something they uh, introduced. This is well, yeah, exactly. This is something, and we've seen this already in Java seven. Things that were not a problem in six, new features they put in that are causing problems. So, in several of the reports of this. Uh, I've seen it written that experts are advising users to disable or even uninstall Java. And there are also reports that an exploit for Java 7 Update 11 has been detected in the wild. Um, and Update 13 was released to fix that one on February 1st. So it's really getting ridiculous. And one of my favorite sources of security news is you know the 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 sans security newsletter that i subscribe to and and it's just a really great summary uh that comes out a couple times a week of stuff one of their editors john pescator who is a vp of gartner for 14 years uh he had a little editorializing after their news summary he said in developing the morse code samuel morse assigned the shortest code element dit to the most common letter, E, in the English language. Java vulnerabilities today, much like IIS, and that was Microsoft's web server back in the day, much like IIS and Internet Explorer vulnerabilities 10 years ago, have now earned DIT status. I, I'm, and I was tempted to say, or maybe duh. Um, it's just amazing. I mean, this is, it, it is getting to be ridiculous. Um, in fact, we've got a w one of our uh, listeners shares with us his company's solution to this problem, how they've worked, how because they have a need for Java, as corporations do, you know, invariably when I tweet something about this, people say, oh, well, you know, the, the best way to fix it is uninstall. It's like, yes, but some people can't. Some, well, if you so, play Minecraft, there's lots of reasons you need it. Yeah, there are actually. And in fact, um, um, the the code that I'm, uh, the Eclipse platform, which yep. is the development platform for, is is Java based. Is Java. So, yep. 
You know, you got to have it around. You don't always have to have it in your browser. Uh, although, uh, you know, and we've heard reports from like like lots of Scandinavian banks require Java plugins yeah. in the browser. So that's the problem. And I mean, it's just it is really getting pathetic and ridiculous. There, we do have a bright spot, however. Um, Firefox version seven, seventeen, version twenty-two. I think we're now. I think I'm on eighteen or nineteen. What am I on now? I updated not long ago. I'm on nineteen point zero. Oh, and that's the one that's got the integrated. We talked about it last week. The integral PDF reader. Right. Even though I had a PDF plugin, I was using Sumatra PDF um, and happy with it. Although it it kind of gets a little wonky sometimes. Um, when I installed the latest version of Firefox last week, it sort of pushed that the plug-in PDF reader aside and took over with its own. So, you know, again, I'm. it's always good to be cautious of something new from a security standpoint because this is a lot of new code. But there's no way that anybody today could develop something which which didn't have developed something for the browser like the Mozilla guys that didn't have security as its number one feature. I mean, it is, there's just, it's, I'm loving the fact that we're seeing the kind of inevitable escalation of awareness because that's the driving force behind these things being fixed in the long term. So, so, you know, that's all good. Anyway, my point is that with Firefox 22, which will be three versions from now, slated for a June 25th release. <laughs> I don't know how they know that, but June 25th. Um, yeah, because so I'm on 18 right now. I mean, I'm way behind that. And that's up, on, just on updated. Safari. Oh, Safari. I'm, I'm sorry. Firefox, I'm, 19. Firefox. I'm Firefox 19. And it says it's on up Mac. to date on the Mac. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes. Um, so they are once again going to try to... Disable third-party cookies by default. Good. Yes. So they will join the the singular rank. I don't know if you can have a rank if there's only one. <laughs> one <of you>. uh, <laughs> but they will form a rank with Safari. The only two browsers then that keep have third-party cookies turned off by default. And you know, and I, I coined the term the tyranny of the default because it is it is so much the case that the default settings are what everyone runs on. I mean, obviously not everyone, but the, but the vast majority of people just assume that smarter people than they figured out how things should be set and they don't want to mess with them because they don't understand them. Um, and, you know, on my, on, I've been tracking third-party cookie usage of GRC's visitors for years now, and I have a, a grc.com slash cookies slash stats dot htm you can see a a really graphic well because it's a chart <laughs> but a very clear display of the effect of safari's decision on third-party cookie usage because among all the browsers that i profile one stands out as just ridiculously low level of third-party cookie usage because it's off unless people turn it on so and this was jonathan mayer uh from Stanford, we've we, he's been on the he's been mentioned in the podcast for years. He's a graduate student in computer science uh, and law at Stanford, uh, focusing on public policy, law, and the internet. 
um, and and privacy. And it was and, and he's got some interesting papers written about the do not track the do not track header and why it represents when it's eventually implemented the best of all worlds because third party cookies and do not track the same thing no third third party cookies are because i don't see a setting in firefox for third party cookies at all anymore oh yeah it's definitely there um and in fact i see see tell websites i don't want to be tracked um no now that's good that's do not track i think it's under the privacy tab no it's not Oh, <clears throat> that's what I thought. <laughs> I looked under privacy and security. Okay. I wonder if they've they've taken that out now. Privacy. Maybe they just turn it on. When they say turn it on by default, maybe they mean it's, it's on. It's on. Okay, so on my privacy tab, I've got, um, oh, maybe it's because uh, I've got Firefox will use custom settings for history and i think that maybe opened up a bunch of things because i've got ah use custom settings ah now i see it so you okay so the default which is remember history doesn't have anything but if you go to use custom settings for history then accept third-party cookies has a checkbox and you can uncheck yep yep that's different from do not track which was the that was the issue for with internet explorer Right, and uh, it's funny because I was looking at browser headers yesterday with with Chrome, and they're just like um, and there was DNT colon space one, just you know Chrome sending out its little beacon of like you know this user has requested not to be tracked, and it's like yeah. oh that's, that's nice. Yeah. So yes, the do not track is a statement from the browser saying that my user has asked not to be tracked. That's all it means. So. The, it's controversial. It's not even enforced. Honoring it's, it's it. It's just a right. request. Honoring the request is up to the people who receive it. Third and party Very famously, are, Apache does not honor well, requests, right? Apache actually goes further. Apache, and this is something I think is so wrong, the server itself strips that header preemptively so that applications on Apache can't even see if it was sent. And I think that is really overstepping the bounds. That, that This will end up getting reversed because it is absolutely wrong. Um, but I do know, wish it, Firefox would make it easier to turn off Java to disable yeah. the Java. I mean, come on. Okay, that's good. <laughs> Although um, I think if you look, where was it I saw it? I think if you look in plugins. Yes, that's under, what, both that Chrome, tools, yeah. Um, both Chrome add-on. Tools add-ons, and then if you look on, uh, if yeah, you do, there it is. Plugins, yeah, yeah. Then it like it shows it in red. It says known to be vulnerable. Acrobat. I've got a couple old Acrobats in here. Eight three one nine three zero. Known to be vulnerable. Disabled. Disabled. So I mean, it really does. You know, it, it it's doing a good job. And we're going to talk in a minute here about something that Google did for the NBC.com site when it got hacked last Thursday. That was really nice for people too. So anyway, so Firefox version 22 makes a very nice step forward. Thanks to Jonathan Mayer at Stanford. I want to, you know, you know, tip of the hat to him and the Mozilla guys for saying, yeah, we're going to, we're going to, we're ready to do this now. They did at one point, it was like version, I don't know, um, four maybe when it was in beta, they had it turned on, but they backed out at the last minute when it, before it went public and said, okay, no, we'll just leave it the way it is. But you know, with we're seeing a groundswell 
to, about privacy, and I'm seeing some things by, from the people who really track this about how privacy and security are beginning to overlap. That is, yeah. people may say, oh, well, you know, privacy, you know, that would be nice to have, but no one has it. The problem is attacks are becoming more targeted, and the more information the targeter has about the targetee, the greater the chance that the attack is going to be successful. So you, it really does make sense to keep your privacy guards up where you can. So anyway, that's a, that's a nice news for Firefox. I know that, I mean, I guess the the people who are in the know today are probably either using Firefox or Chrome. Certainly no one's using IE, although it's too bad because Microsoft is really, you know. They, hey, you know what? <laughs> I've been using Windows 8. Uh, on a uh, on a high res tablet, and Chrome looks like crap. So I'm using Internet Explorer. Chrome is my default, but it does not look good on this uh, 1920 by 1080 display, and it doesn't support touch. So I can't, right. you know, with the Internet Explorer, I can I can scroll with my fingers, I can zoom and pinch, and and Chrome not yet. I'm sure it will. Maybe. Well, uh, and know. the fact is, IE 10 today. I mean, we're we're still. It's good. Yes, it and it's they've and Microsoft has really they focused on security. It took them forever to get off the launch pad and into orbit, as always is the case with them or or any really huge organization. But they have, and so it's really not fair to you know accuse them of still having IE six. Right, they don't have IE six anymore. They have IE ten, and they and it's it's way better. So, um, yeah, fact, I, I, I ended up using IE ten on Windows eight just because it it was better. And yeah. speaking of which, IE10 just came out of beta. I upgraded to that on, on a Windows 7 machine of mine yesterday. Uh, you know, 7 comes with 9, and I updated to 10 because I wanted to start watching it and see how it feels. It, you know, it looks absolutely the same. So yeah. it's just, you know, it's better. But I guess it, I can it, scroll it, with two fingers. It's just weird. <laughs> it's, you know, Explorer just looks better. Just yeah. handles it better. So if you're using Windows 8, I think there are probably a lot of people who have gone back to explore. So um, what I was going to say was that on the desktop platforms, we're probably split between Firefox and Chrome, either of which are, you know, really good choices, I think. Um, what did not get any news coverage, I was really surprised. I didn't even, no one seemed to pick it up and tweet it to me. Uh you know, so that my main, my major pulse in on the industry didn't see this is that Microsoft was also hacked along with Facebook and Apple. Yeah, they didn't mention it. <laughs> no, everybody else did. <laughs> exactly, and so in a in their in their uh, in their blog Friday, they said under the title of recent cyber attacks, they said as reported by Facebook and Apple, Microsoft can confirm that we also recently experienced a similar security intrusion. Consistent with our security response practices, we chose not to make a statement during the initial information gathering process. During our investigation, we found a small number of computers, including some in our Mac business unit. In other words, it was the same iOS watering hole attack that got the Facebook and Apple developers that were infected by malicious software using techniques similar to those documented by other organizations. We have no evidence of cu customer data being affected, and our investigation is ongoing. 
Well, good luck with your investigation. Um, so, such a uh, cynic. I, <laughs> I've been watching them for too long. Um, you know, I, although I do, as I said last week, I've been very impressed with uh, Server 2008 R2, and uh, and I am using uh, a new Win7 uh, installation with IIS 7.5 here at home. So I have the same thing that I have uh, at the data center. And, I, I, you know, they got their act together, finally. Good. Apparently, you know someone I named do. Bob Bozen. Okay. Who once talked about his AskMrWizard.com website. Sounds he right. Had, he had some, uh, some interaction with you. Well, Bob asked me how, if it would be all right with me if for some selected propeller head episodes, which sort of cry out for graphics, if he were to do some animated graphics to, to go along with my voiceover. Oh. And I said, of course. Yeah, absolutely. I love that idea. So... You can go to askmrwizard.com, and over on the left, you will see a link to Security Now, or you can go askmrwizard.com slash Security Now, which takes you directly there. And what I saw yesterday, and I don't know how he's organizing it, because he I just saw his note when I was going he through the queue. Security Now Illustrated. <laughs> I like yeah. it. Yeah. And there... He 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 handles NAT traversal. He does. He talks about NAT routing and how NAT routing are That's good neat. firewalls. I mean, basically, he's using the podcast audio, but doing 3D animated video. Wow! To with like comments and 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 balloons that illustrate things. You know, he understands it, and so he's helping other people to do so. So. Um, what I'm gonna what I'm gonna do is I want to tell everybody about it. I asked him, "Can we tell everybody?" He says, "Oh yeah, sure." So this stuff's up on YouTube, and um, and what I w- I will hope is that as he finishes new ones, he'll let me know, and I'll just make a brief note during the show that there's another one for people to check out if they want. But they're they're nice. I mean, you know, it, it it's you know done at home, but it's nice 3D graphics. You know, animated. That's really stuff. cool. That's Sony. And, that, okay. and I do agree. I've always wished we had the budget to have yes. more uh, illustrations in all of our shows. Yeah. And and especially for this, when we're doing the fancy stuff, when I'm talking about encryption and all that, it'd be wonderful. But, oh, I'm, oh my God, that's, you know, <laughs> it would take over my life for the week, you know, getting that stuff done. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't. Well, I'm a perfectionist and I would, I would never be happy with it. Yeah. So, yeah. okay, now, Leo, this is beyond cool. You need to click the link in that next item. Okay. Don't say it out uh, loud until I do. I won't. Because <laughs> we'll probably bring it down. This right. is something that someone following me over in my VLC Twitter feed tweeted, and it is so cool. This is, It's called the U-Check Urine Analysis. <laughs> and, but it is brilliant. They use... <laughs> Smart. They use a, a, a smartphone like an iPhone yeah. to to you take a picture of urine test strips oh. over time. Oh. So you take you take several different pictures of it as the as the test strip is evolving, and then this thing interprets the results for you much better than you could just by hand. 
and of course builds in a calendar and, and all that. So and it measures ketones, uh, uh, you know, all kinds of measures w which are detectable from a urinalysis. Because I, I, just, I, I, you know, this is non-trivial. I look at these things and I don't. I, is that purple? Is it green? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. and. Now, okay, and the thing that I got the biggest kick out of was that the developers who said, well, you know, we're, this is going to be an Apple application, so we're tempted to call it IP. IP. There will be an Android version, too, though, so <laughs> IP. Anyway. I like it. Just, I like well, it. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Not okay. out yet, by the way. Don't, but U-C-H-E-K.I-N if you want to check for it. Ah, good. Yeah. Yes. Looks neat. Yeah. Um, okay, so this is, again, we're doing, we're doing miscellanea here um but this is the most exciting piece of news i've seen in years it is the cover of next week's time magazine it's been on the time.com site for about a week it is a long story i tweeted the link to it um uh, i also created a bitly shortcut bit.ly slash Bitter, B-I-T-T-E-R hyphen pill, P-I-L-L. Bitter Pill is the title of this Time magazine. It is a major investigative report, the longest one Time magazine has ever undertaken. Seven and a half months they worked on this. And what's exciting to me, the whole title is Bitter Pill, Why Medical Bills Are Killing Us. And this has been my own personal crusade. I mean, my friends are all annoyed with me because I'm ranting because, you know, here we are with with our, our, but the Republicans and the Democrats locked up. We've got the sequester coming into effect on Friday and everyone's, you know, yelling and pointing fingers at each other. Um, they're worried about, you know, entitlement reform and, and the entitlements are going to uh, the, the, the soaring cost of medicine. And I have been asking, OK, you know, the driver of all of this is that it costs so much. Yeah. Is it cost so much? Yeah. Why does, you know, okay, yes, open heart surgery is is amazing. Yeah, but a Band-Aid shouldn't cost $25. Exactly. And I have a, an elderly friend who's in, who lives in my neighborhood who's had a couple rather routine surgeries. and But because he's 75, they kept him at our local Newport oh. Beach hospital. You don't ever want that. It was like seventy eight hundred dollars a yeah. night, seventy eight hundred dollars a day, and it's—I mean, just mind-boggling. And it's like, okay, why? And and what I'm excited about, and the reason I'm bothering our security-oriented listeners about this is, I don't think there's anything more important. Um, I don't—I have no problem with Mercedes and BMWs costing whatever they want because I can choose. Right. If I want to drive a VW right. or a BMW. It's discretionary. Or, yeah. Yes. But health isn't. And and this article, which is fascinating, I, I, I'm, I'm mentioning it because I would encourage everyone to make some time to read it. It'll be out on the newsstands this weekend. It's next week's Time Magazine cover story. You can get it now um, uh, online at time.com. And it, it is fascinating this reporter doesn't just wave his arms around and talk about how expensive everything is he goes through individual people's case histories to talks about their you know dissects their 327 page medical bill 
and demonstrates how wrong it is that a a hospital in Texas that is nonprofit and therefore tax exempt is making a billion dollars lobbying Congress. The medical industry lobbies Congress five times more than the defense industry does. It is it's amazing. And so anyway, I just wanted to point people to it. Um, Enough said. But that's the problem that we have is it's the expense at the far end that is, you know, pushing everything back. So uh, I just thought it was really interesting. and I was so glad to see it because we have to have this has to be brought to light and nothing will do it better than a, you know, a cover story in Time magazine. All the different news stories. John Stewart had the guy on um, uh, late last week. Uh, the, all of the morning shows have, have been talking about it. So I'm just glad it's getting some some attention. Uh, it's really important. Um, also, my one of my very favorite sci-fi authors is now on Audible, Michael McCollum of SciFiD.com. Uh, so I wanted to let people know, I got the heads up from a couple of our listeners who said, hey, uh, Michael's books just appeared. And I'm, I'm, by just, we're talking like the 19th, you know, so just last week. Um, I pinged him and said, hey, what's the story? Because there are five of his books are there now. The first two of the Antares trilogy, the first one of the Gibraltar trilogy, uh, and both of the Maker series. Um, and But they're all going to be there. He told me that Audible had purchased the rights to all of them. He was removing his own um, Audible experiment where he was, I think he had an automated uh, text reader that was like reading them, which is like way less, you know, wonderful than an actual person reading them. But they're they're out there now. They're on Audible. Um, and so I just wanted to give our listeners a, a heads up. I The Antares Dawn series uh, is just great as is gibraltar earth uh, i really really enjoyed them i'm so glad they're on audible i'm did he make it he must have made a deal because he's his own publisher right yeah he yeah, is yeah they cool. the rights he has an agent and so the agent uh you know made a deal with them they wanted them and so i'm delighted Yay. that there was the interest and yes. i presume they're going to do book three of antares they've got to no they're going to do them all yeah. all of his yeah. books will will be there and oh, just, that's so for awesome. example antares uh, Antares Dawn, the first one, was released on the 17th of this month, February 17th, and Dar- Antares Passage on the 19th. Oh, okay. So, and then uh, Procyon's Promise on the 20th. So, okay. you know, they're all they're all on their way out. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, all the PDP-8 clones were sold, Leo. Uh, the oh, 19th- shoot. I just missed out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the ultimate nothing box, as you would... <laughs> I can't argue, but they're just wonderful. And many people have been writing, talking about something that's been in the news, but is really not that newsy. But I, so I wanted to cover it just so that people would understand sort of where we stand. And that's over graphene. Um, graphene is amazing, but it's about eight years ago graphene began to happen. What what was what was newsy was that a video that was made of a bizarre way that a couple guys in the lab created graphene by like dripping it on a CD and putting it in the in in their CD burner 
and like what? using the yeah they use they use the UV or the laser oh, of hysterical. the of, homemade graphene to like create the graphene and they produce there's a beautifully produced video that sort of doesn't get into as much detail as I would like but it won some awards for I don't know <laughs> great graphene documentary <laughs> something it ain't the academy award but it'll do but what's exciting and the and, and the intersection with us and me and the podcast is there's probably nothing more perfect for supercapacitors. Oh. Now, what graphene is, it, it is an amazing uh, substance. Um, it is pure carbon, so it is just carbon molecules interlinked in a hexagonal matrix, which is one atom thick. Wow. So imagine... Just a flat sheet of carbon atoms linked to each other, absolutely flat. It's called an atomic monolayer. But get a load of its properties. Okay, in terms of resistivity, that is, its resistance to, uh, to electrical flow, a, a graphene sheet is 10 to the negative 6 ohms Per centimeter, so very I mean, low, very very unbelievably low resistance. Uh, in fact, is, that, is, it, is it a superconductor in that case? It's not, but it is like it's like close. Yeah, uh, it's less resistance than silver, which is the lowest resistivity substance known at room temperature, and graphene is lower than that. It's also one of the strongest materials known. Uh, get, get this. A square meter graphene hammock. Imagine that you made a hammock that was a square meter, so a little more than a yard, a yard by a yard. That would support a four-kilogram cat, an 8.8-pound <laughs> cat. Okay? Okay. But it would weigh... Only as much as one of the cat's whiskers. Wow. 0.77 milligrams. That It is that thin and that low weight, that, but that strong, so that a square meter of graphene sheeting could, could, hold, could, could support an 8.8, almost a 9-pound cat, yet weigh about as much as a whisker. Um, and it is... Point zero zero one percent of the weight of paper. Point zero zero one percent. So, just incredible. It is also transparent. It only absorbs two point three percent of the light passing through it. Oh, so see, I was going to make a solar sail out of it, but it wouldn't be very good for that. Well, uh, strong but invisible. Because you need to be reflective yeah, in order you need to, to capture it. Yes, um, but think of all the instances where we want something conductive that's an electrode, right, like right. a screen or an LCD panel, where, where we need to pass electricity. Nothing does this better than graphene. So huge applications there, but more, more, more than anything else, ultracapacitors. What you need for an ultracapacitor is, is 
two electrically conductive surfaces very, very close. And it turns out you can create graphene oxide, which by being an oxide is an insulator. So you take a graphene sheet, a, a graphene oxide, and a graphene sheet, and they are incredibly close together. They're one molecule apart. Um, and the graphene sheets are, are incredibly low resistance, so they can, they can hold a large charge with a high breakdown between them. So initial studies of using graphene for ultracapacitors has shown that it has more energy density than current lithium um, metal. It wasn't metal. It wasn't lithium ion. It was lithium metal hydride, which is slightly lower energy density than lithium ion cells. But still, real. I mean, like this is existing. I mean, we're we're, we're getting this in the lab today. So this isn't, you know, bizarro future technology that isn't close. Uh, we're we're and, and everyone's talking about, you know, cell phones that you can charge in a second that whose charge lasts a day. No more of this hours to recharge or cars where you drive them into a high current charging station, plug in for 60 seconds and you are completely topped up. So Yes, that's what we need. It is looking like graphene is the way we're going to get there. Uh, it is just a, an amazing substance, and apparently you just squirt it on a CD and spin it in your in your computer, and you're able to to make some of it. <laughs> that blows me away. <laughs> Not a usable amount of it. That's just you know, uh, it, it's just spot. Yeah, I, I'm not impressed by that because it's it was fun in the lab, right. but in commercial s settings, they're not going to you know get a room full of CD drives. <laughs> Well, it means burning. it means it's not a very very difficult thing. You can do it at room temperature with simple it's, devices. So that's good news. There, I mean, there's, I mean, everybody is racing. The patent office is is under siege with graphene related patents. Cool. So there are a lot of things that have been done that no one can talk about yet because they're waiting to. You right. know, I mean, they're, they're having to go through some intellectual property protection process. But labs everywhere are going nuts. And it turns out that maybe it's going to affect both semiconductor production because you need c conductive surfaces on top of semiconductors. Right now they right. use what's called metallization layers. And graphene, if they can figure out how to tame it, could be way better than what they have now for semiconductor metallization layers. And um, there's been some notion that this may create a breakthrough in quantum computing as well. So, you know, this is really cool stuff. Graphene. Do you want me to continue? <laughs> oh, well. There's a pause I'm here. Exhausted. So, Are you exhausted? <laughs> I haven't seen you ever been exhausted. We are at the end of this uh, list of uh, things. We do have some questions. You know, you, you're probably waiting for me to... I know, I know what you're thinking. What's that box Leo's got there? That was it exactly. The I know it's... The, the one with the underwear on the tape. I know that's what you're thinking. <laughs> it's my man pack. Uh -huh. This actually, you might like this, Steve. Uh, man packs is, is well, at first, I first became aware of it with underwear by mail. Um, let, me, let me go to manpacks.com and I can show you. Uh, show, actually, go to manpacks.com slash twit. M-A-N-P-A-C-K-S dot com slash twit. Jeff Jarvis told me about this a couple of years ago, and I became a, a Manpax 
a subscriber. And uh, I've been getting my man pack in the mail now every three months. This is my latest man pack. And, you know, you can it has different stuff. You can order different stuff. Uh, but, for instance, uh, I usually get socks. These are athletic socks. Sometimes I get dress socks. Um, underwear. You know, and I found they have some. They have shampoo. They have condoms. All, all the kinds of deodorant. All the stuff men would get uh, delivered on a schedule. And so I found the shampoo there that I really like, and so forth. So here's the deal: if you go to manpacks.com/slash/twit, just take a look. Go browse through all the stuff. These are the ex officio boxers that uh, that I like. They have just a touch of spandex to give you that extra support that men like so very much. Um, I like the socks too. These are, and the grooming lounge. You know, this is really cool stuff. This is a DC barbershop, and they have uh, the little shaving kit is perfect for travel. Everything's under uh, TSA limits, but it's got uh, uh, you know uh, shaving uh, kind of a cream. Uh, it's got a after a beard buster and after beard shaving. Anyway, take ten dollars off right now if you subscribe. Save ten dollars on your thirty dollar order or more. If you want to buy a gift card for a man in your life, gals or guys, you get a $50 gift card for only $40. Manpack.com. Manpacks, pardon me, plural.com slash twit. And now I can take my man pack home. <laughs> I've, been, I've been leaving it here. This is the Beardmaster Shave Oil. This is good stuff. You put that on with the shaving cream, man, and you will never, you will... Well, that's something else. I don't know what that is. I do is, love but. the idea of the uh, TSA-compatible sizes. Of yeah, things. yeah. This, this, I recommend this a shaving kit. It's a sampler of all of these uh, beard uh, destroyers, but uh, but the TSA size. So you, and it's, it comes in a little clear case that you could just put you know, in your luggage. So that's what I do when I travel. I get one of these every every time I travel uh, at manpacks.com slash twit. Highly recommended. Now, Steve, are you ready? <laughs> See, I knew you wanted to know what this box was. I, that's, that's the question I was waiting for, Leo. <laughs> Are you ready for questions? Here we go. <laughs> no, I'm not going to show that product, chat room. It's, uh, I'll mm-hmm. leave that for you to discover on the Manpack site. They actually have uh, an interesting, the condoms they sell, Sir Richard's. You buy, they, no, I know, I like the name. Isn't that good? They donate for every condom you buy. They can donate one to a, a poor condomless person in, in Africa or somewhere. I'm laughing, but it's actually a great program. Question one: John Thompson, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Look, he spelled it exactly right. I guess that's because he lived there. He suggests that the canine isn't the only thing that's been quiet about the Quiet Canine Project. Steve, it's been months since we've heard anything definitive about your work on the Quiet Canine Project and your development of the treble, uh, treble shooter devices. At one point, you said that hundreds of listeners had used the Quiet Canine feedback page to tell their stories and plead for a solution. I number among them, so perhaps you'll consider this as a short topic for a forthcoming Q&A. Where, well, I- where is, is the canine? So, okay, I got, I did get pulled off of it by the emergency that I had with uh, my 13-year-old servers that began to get (laughs) too long in the tooth, I guess. They started having weird problems that were of no discernible cause. I moved them to different hardware, same problem. I 
I, you know, rebuilt the software, no improvement. I just think it was actually, I think it was date related and it began on January 1st and it began and it kept getting worse until toward the end of January. Uh, I could, I, it became a real problem. So as I've mentioned before, um, I did have brand new servers waiting to be deployed. And this was finally the impetus to make that happen. So I have a few things I need to clean up uh, to finish resolving. There were a bunch of incompatibilities that I feared. The, all the major ones were cured quickly, and I've still got some I need to, to clean up. Then I'm going to get back to just wrapping up that project. But here's what I think we've learned. And um, this is from all the experiments that people have done so far, even though I, there's still one thing le- left I really want to try, and that is uh, to, to try a tuned resonant cavity with a transducer, you know, a, a piezo bender or a, a Twitter driver, a tweeter driver uh, at the end where we tune the cavity for resonance and, and see how that works. To do that, we need a, a high voltage variable frequency sine wave source, which is what I was working on uh, when I got pulled off to fix the servers. But what I think we know now is that what many people want is not possible. It's that, oh, no. <laughs> that's, the rip, that's the rip the bandage off reality. Um, what people want is something that will silence a dog three houses away or two stories below them in an apartment building. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we don't have that. Yeah. Okay. Um, and we're not we're not going to have that. There's no there's no treble sniper version of the treble shooter. Well, and I I I was wondering why so many people were asking for that, and I realized it's because several different aspects of the original portable dog killer story kind of fit together that uh. way, but they weren't really meant to. When I when I caused the do- the rabid German shepherd attack canine to have its legs collapse out from under it and make an amazing sound, and then over the course of about a week and a half, trained it never to rush the fence, yeah. it was by shooting it point blank in the face. I mean, I was at the fence. It was, you know, leaping over the fence, and I shot it right in the muzzle and elicited the reaction that that I had. So it was, and as much as anything, it was terror. I mean, this was, this this scared the dog, didn't hurt it, just scared the bejesus out of it. And and so that was, that was the key, something it was absolutely not expecting, really, literally right in its face. And then the second thing, adventure was with the seagulls where we discovered that at a good distance away we were able to alter the flight path hey somebody just bought uh, a copy of spin right <laughs> <laughs> i actually have the phone next to me and I, it's good it now works out of the blackberry as well oh, as the, very nice very nice in the living room so wherever i am i get a yabba dabba <laughs> in my pocket it's quite nice anyway so um so you know there was the altering the flight path of the seagulls yeah. The problem is sort of by combining those two effects, people have been hoping that they could stop a dog from barking 
at the same distance that the seagulls were, you know, uh, had, had their, yeah. their flight path altered. Right. And it's not the case. The dog might even bark more because, you know, it's going to hear this and think, huh, what's that? I think maybe I'll bark at it. Right. So, so unfortunately, we don't have an answer for that. Now, the good news is many of the people who did send feedback through the Quiet Canine feedback page have a need for what I would call tactical personal defense. And I think we have an answer there. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, and, and it's it costs about $8. I mean, it's amazingly inexpensive. And that's the, a, just that little seven or eight component design that I have and a $2 tweeter you know, with, with a couple, I think it's a 9-volt battery it runs on. Um, and it's fantastic. So, I mean, so, and that would be if you're jogging and there's a vicious dog approaching you, you know, that sort of thing. Personal tactical defense where where you need to discourage, I mean, and it's surprising how many people have this problem. So that we have. Like a mail carrier would need this. Yes. In fact, we have have mail carrier listeners who have sent feedback saying, Steve, I need this. You know, I'd be happy to to test it out and tell you how it works. Because right now they carry some uh, mace or something to get the dogs. Yeah. And, you know, that's horrible. That's, you know. That's really mean. Yeah. 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 Um, Now, the alter- the other thing so so that works the idea of of a handheld personal short range tactical defense that we have because that's essentially the same thing that worked back when i was you know 19 you know w- with the dog that was attacking me and it just stopped it cold and i have a feeling this would work be incredibly effective there but the problem is at a distance there's just no way to project something really really powerful that isn't going to fall off as as it as it carries i mean the dog will hear it no doubt about it but it's not going to stop it right now we it do might, have a it bunch. might anger it and that wouldn't be it, good it well could um we do have some dog owners who want to stop their own dog from barking and there i am what I'm thinking of is a dog collar. So you get the advantage of proximity and the electronics module sitting down by the dog's larynx so it's able to discriminate the dog's bark from alternative dog bark, you know, other dogs barking or other sounds and so forth. And it would have a microcontroller in it and be smart so that it's not going to misfire. But then there are some sort of some surface mount tweeters. Pile makes uh, some very inexpensive little surface mount tweeters, two of them. I guess people like stick them on their dashboard in their cars and to get extra, you know, high-end response from their stereos. But if you stuck those on either side of a collar, then that would also definitely deter a dog, deter a dog from barking. The problem, of course, is it wouldn't deter a neighbor's dog from barking unless you could say, do you mind if I put this anti-barking dog collar on your dog? And if they, if they said, yeah, we don't care, then that would, that would work. But the idea that you're going to, you know, shoot something three doors down and stop a barking dog. It's just, we don't have that. That, that That's just not going to be possible. So that's where I am. Uh, I expect a few weeks from now, I will have all of the GRC debris wrapped up, and I'm going to then get back 
um, and and wrap the project up, put the make the pages public, uh, put make the designs public. Uh, probably still going to uh, build a bunch to provide to our listeners who have an application that uh, that w- would fit this. So uh, that's where we are. Excellent. Question two from Matt, who has it a secret location. <clears throat> he offers his Java strategy. Steve, Steve, I thought I'd chime in on how my organization is handling Java. I think it might be helpful for others in the Security Now audience. I work at a research institute housed within a big university. We recommend that all of our users use Firefox or Chrome with Java plugins disabled for their primary browser. The university has some course services that require IE, Java, and in some cases both. So we leave Java enabled in Internet Explorer and ask users to use IE only to interact with those particular services. This way our users can still get their jobs done and are better protected during their other regular activities. And I guess because they're using intranet uh, sites, they're probably not anything to worry about using IE in that case. Thanks for Security Now, Spinrite, and everything else you do. That's probably a good solution if you can get people to I do like it. That. Yeah. Um, I mean, all Windows machines have IE in them, whether you want them or not, right. thanks to the weird architecture that Microsoft created in order to say that, you know, back when the, the DOJ was, you know, fighting them for antitrust and they were trying to say, oh, no, no, we can't remove Internet Explorer. It's part of the operating system. It's like, what? You know, so they made it part of the operating system <laughs> for no good reason. And as yes, Leo, I am a cynic, but uh, <laughs> uh, um, since you're going to have IE anyway, and you'd really <clears throat> rather not surf the internet on IE, why not put Java there, where you know, like bundle all your problems in one place, <laughs> and then not not use them at all. Yeah, only use it on on the intranet or something like that. Yeah. yeah. The other thing, I've, you know, your comment about that, uh, you know, read my mind because IE also has that whole notion of security zones. You could say only on trusted sites. Yes. So you could crank up the internet yeah, security all the way to high. And there's that new feature that they have, that enhanced security thing that <laughs> prevents you from doing anything useful. You can't do anything if that's turned on. But turn it on. And because you don't want to do anything by mistake um, for the internet and then for intranet where, you know, it's a block of IPs that are local. Hey, then you're able to use Java and IE with no trouble. So I think, you know, there's a way to tame this essentially by giving Java its own playground. But just make sure that it's removed from the browser that you normally choose to use. Yeah. So you have a local intranet zone and you could say. Don't you can you can only do stuff there, right? Yes. yes. <clears throat> and and it, when it comes to the internet, turn it all the way up, and, uh, yeah, and I th- you know then you're all right. And I think that that must be a corporate. I'm, I'm, oh, I'm it's definitely for this purpose exactly. How many users you know get yeah. into their zone configuration, right. and I and what happens is using Active Directory and group policies, which are Microsoft right. technologies, the it. IT department yep. Yep. is able to propagate settings out through the entire network yeah. and and you know like remotely lock down and configure um their browsers for for their users so it's it's good for that precisely yeah question 3 from a ham in Ireland in Galway EI8DRB Stephen Leo huge fan of the show in fact it was security now that introduced me to the world of podcasting in general what we like to call them netcasts but thanks for providing me with the company 
uh, in the frequent traveling I do as part of my work. In recent episodes, Steve, you were talking about how parallelism has reduced the hardness of certain computational functions. You mentioned specifically iterative hashing functions and proceeded to describe how pipelining could reduce a multi-iteration hashing function to a series of discrete stages in a pipeline. However, did you forget to take into account that each iteration takes the previous iteration as an input? Unrolling this into a multi-stage pipeline would be infeasible since stage N would require as an input the output of stage N plus 1, which in a pipeline would execute at the same time and thus would not have the result in time for stage N. Am I correct? Is there something fundamental I've missed thanks to you and all of you at Twit and Security Now? Regards in 7-3, Jerry. You, you talked okay, about this uh, recently. I yeah, I did. And I just wanted to make sure that this wasn't a common misunderstanding. Jerry's right, except that he got his math a little bit wrong. And minus one. It's, yes, exactly. Yeah. It's he, he said since stage N would require as input the output of stage N plus one, it's actually stage N plus one requires as input the output of stage N. Right. So it, it it works exactly correctly. That is the it's the and this is in general the way pipelining of all forms works, whether it's CPU instruction process pipelining or or any kind of loop unrolling pipelining. The it's it is the output of the previous stage feeds into the input of the next stage, as opposed to where Jerry got himself tangled up. Uh, he had the the output of the succeeding stage being needed as for the input to the preceding stage, which is is not the case. So it is the case that the pipelining works just beautifully and. You know, it's just it's such a cool concept that you're able to take something that, you know, that is iterative. And as they say, well, and, and in fact, in, in computer science terms, it's called unrolling the loop. One of the things when when you are, I mean, in any kind of a, of computer processing, you often have a loop that you're doing multiple times. If you absolutely have to have the the highest performance possible, there is in, in programming a slight overhead to the loop itself. When you get to the bottom, you, you typically have to check something to see if you need to do it again, like you have a counter. So like say that you had to do something five times. So you, do, you de do decrement the counter, then you check to see if it went to zero, and if not, you jump back up to the top of the loop. So there's a decrement, a test and a conditional jump, which you execute every time through the loop. But if you all if but if you really care about performance, instead you do what's called unrolling the loop, where you actually have the those set of instructions linearly laid out five times. Then the, you don't have to have a counter, you don't have to have a test, and you don't have to have a jump. The end of one set just falls right into the next set which falls into the next set and by the time it comes out it's done so 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 you save the loop overhead uh, and that's again another form a sort of a form of, of pipelining relative to uh iteration where the out where the results the work from each stage is is sort of by implication is available to the next stage 
Question four comes from Ben in Whittier, California, just down the road from Steve. He wonders about RAID controller failure. Steve, I was listening to Security Now 391 in which you talked about your monster server setup and all the redundancy in RAID 6 and all that. In my own admittedly limited experience with servers, the first component to die is usually the RAID controller itself. Oops. <clears throat> Are you increasing your exposure to such a failure by going with such an enormous onboard RAID controller cache? How messed up will your disks be if the cache memory goes out while the server is running? Thanks for uh, explaining your setup. Best regards, Ben. So, first of all, that's a very good point. Um, that is a failure point. I don't know if they're... I mean, they're solid state, aren't they? They're less... They're solid state, and several things are going on. Um, the, the thing that I am least comfortable with is that I have chemistry involved in the form of a battery. That is, you know, the it's a lithium-ion battery. It will keep the RAM contents in the RAID alive for two days. Um, I really question whether I need it at all because I'm at level three that has, you know, when they were giving me their initial tour of the data center, oh, my God, they have a warehouse of batteries. Just, just Wall being just ranks of batteries. Um, it's amazing. And then outside, they have what looks like um, huge uh, RVs, which are industrial-sized generators and tanks of fuel. I mean, these guys are really committed to the power never failing. So I really doubt that I need battery backup at all. But, you know, maybe I would pull the cable, you know, the power cord myself. Or maybe both of the redundant power supplies could fail at the same time. I mean, it's really unlikely, but you never know. So because I want the benefit of the so-called right-back caching, where, nush, where nothing is written out to the SSDs until the, the space in the cache is needed, battery backup is really the only way to do that safely. What the system does is every month it cycles the battery. It it it. it I mean, it's very nicely done. It it suspends the use of write-back caching and switches to write-through caching. Then, you know, while it's doing this, then it takes the battery offline, drains it, and recharges it, measuring battery parameters all, all the while. And then once it's back up to snuff, it returns to write-back caching. So, you know, it's monitoring the battery. Uh, it sends email reports of anything it finds. Um but worse, the worst could happen, and the RAID controller could fail, which is why I have an entire second machine ah. sitting idle. Wow. I, I bought two of the entire setup. So I've got, you know, this thing's got redundant power supplies. I already have two spare power supplies in addition to an entire second machine identically configured sitting idle. Um, I did that. 13 years ago and never needed. I actually have three. Uh, one's running Unix, one's, one was running Windows, and a third one was just off, ready in case of, you know, an emergency. My feeling has been, you know, it, since I would hate to be down for days, which, you know, I would be taken down for days, if you know, like running around trying to find some other machine to run GRC, uh, it's worth it to me just to invest up front. So I have... At 100% redundancy of a system that is already ridiculously redundant. 
if there ever be such a thing. Question five. Jim in San Diego wonders how something like a dumb PDF viewer could be so dangerous. I can't. I still, you know, after our conversation last week, I look and everywhere, everywhere says, you need Adobe Reader. You need Adobe Reader. No, you don't. Oh, no, yeah. you don't. Steve, I love your podcast. Listen as often as I can. As always, it seems Adobe has fixed yet more zero-day flaws in Adobe Reader last month. Perhaps I'm, actually this month, perhaps I'm not getting something obvious. Why can't Adobe Reader be written so that even if it crashes, it would not have the ability to install malicious code? Is Adobe Reader's problem related to having access to kernel space? What's the deal? Jim in San Diego. So, okay, and just to add to your comment about it being installed, uh, I was setting up this new machine. I have a it's a it's a clone of the i the Intel mm-hmm. Core i seven uh, that I uh, created when we were gonna we were experimenting with that other video technology. Um, uh, it's a shuttle, uh, nice little shuttle oh, box. Nice. Yeah, I like um, those. and I you know I added the chips and RAM and so forth. Uh, and when I and I was setting it up from scratch a couple of days ago, and I ran the installer for all of its own drivers, the chipset driver, the NIC driver, the display driver, and so forth. And bloop, there appeared on the screen a little icon for Adobe 9, you know, in that ruby red color there. It's like, yeah, you just cannot get away from it. Of course, I uninstalled it and put Foxit Reader in instead. Um, so the only, th- the only way I can explain what's going on with Acrobat or Reader um, is that Adobe has such a stranglehold for reasons that Leo and I were just saying, Jim, that it doesn't matter to them. Um, sure, some some portion of the security-aware world is upset and doesn't use Reader, uses something else, but... Everything has problems, though, right? I mean, it's, it's not like it's, there's... A perfect solution. Well, yes. Software is software. It's just that Reader is ubiquitous. Yes. In fact, I might even say that one of the reasons he keeps saving Java exploits is because it's a great vector. Right? So people are looking at it. Well, and also it's that they are both incredibly complicated. Complexity is the demon of security. I mean, it, and it Microsoft is, has been aggressive about patching flaws on Windows. So yes, you look to and, a third party, which is not updated so easily. Well, and also, what's the economic model? That is, Microsoft was clearly going to suffer with competition from alternative operating system platforms. Once right. upon a time, there was BOS, oh. and there was, you know, and there was there, were, you know, Apple and mm-hmm. Linux and mm-hmm. so forth. Mm-hmm. It was clear. That Microsoft was was suffering from their horrible reputation about security, and so they they did the trust the what a trusted security platform or something yeah, whatever yeah, that was yeah, yeah. that Gates did his keynote trusted on a computing Combat. platform TCP. That's right. Yeah. And but okay, but Reader is given away. You know, I mean, Reader is a free download. Right. right. Java just you know we don't ever pay for it or ask for it. It's just there. So these are sort of weird lost leader things for these companies. I mean, Mark Thompson has been experimenting with the amount of money you can make if you bundle one of these, you know, default install checkbox things. Oh, yeah. You know, the ask toolbar or the, 
the the um what what was it the other thing it was ask toolbar and there was something else that uh that adobe was trying to install anyway the point is there's always something yeah mcafee that's what it was it was it's amazing really much good bucks huh oh my goodness (laughs) mark tops is analog x he does shareware and he's usually just gives it away yeah Yeah. but but you know he's like hey let's you know i I don't know somehow it crossed his radar he did some research and it's like oh my god how much money you can make and so you know here's adobe saying eh, you know (laughs) we 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 own pdfs we invented it. it it did go open source and an open spec so it's no longer a closed platform uh it's getting installed everywhere and we're making a bunch of money because we try to install crapware that people don't want at the same time mm. i mean it's like what's their motivation for fixing it I, they really you know they're going to respond but yeah, it, it does not clear that it hurts them and the same thing for oracle and java and java is, is installing crap too there are lots so, of third-party choices. Uh, people in the chat room are wondering if there's one you like or recommend. I do like Foxit. It's what I've it's what I've been using uh, recently. Um, I installed it on Sue's machine when I rebuilt her computer a couple weeks ago, and uh, uh, and told her, "Okay, the icon changed now, but right. uh, this is what it looks like." And uh, it it's still uh, use it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's had, it, it's had it's had it's had flaws too. It's not free from uh, flaws, but uh, well, that's just it. I would imagine. Uh, see, okay, one of the problems with 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 Reader is it is ridiculously over complex. Right. Who needs JavaScript interpretation? Yeah. There, I mean, talk about asking for trouble if you if you're going to run jo- a JavaScript interpreter in a PDF document. It's like, oh, just shoot yourself now. Because I mean, we're trying to protect ourselves from JavaScript by by locking down our browsers. And you know, notice that the browsers that where their reputation and security matters, they fix it. They whatever it takes, they fix it. I don't see anything like that happening from Adobe and Oracle with with, with Reader and Java. They they just don't have the need. Is does it use Ring Zero? Does it access the kernel? Does I mean, is that no? Part? No, I don't think it does. No, the problem is that it's, and that's the other part is that we're still in a, and we're still in an operating system where users want freedom, and look at how developers chafe at the restrictions that iOS puts on them, and and even users, it's like, hey, why can't I do this? Why can't I have LastPass running on my Safari browser in iOS? It's like, nope can't do that so that's a restriction that that annoys people but it's where security comes from well we don't have that really to speak of on our desktop platforms because they're open and people want to be able to run anything they want on their computer if that's what you ask for then unfortunately it means you've got a you you, your applications are empowered to do whatever they want to on the system which means that an aberrant application malware in whatever shape it takes is similarly empowered to do whatever it wants because the system is designed that way you know we want it that way we asked for it yeah until it goes bad right more power more power question six an anonymous listener you suggest the name bruce so we'll use that yeah i'm anonymous call me bruce posed a few good questions about bluetooth keyboards I was using a Bluetooth keyboard 
out at a restaurant the other day, and this question popped into my mind, is what I'm typing encrypted? Could anybody just listen in on my Bluetooth keystrokes? And if my connection's encrypted, how secure is it? It seems as if there could be a problem with a with some sort of statistical attack on the data that's going up to my mobile device. If the attacker knows the data is all keystrokes, perhaps they could make an educated guess about the frequency of which keys were being depressed, extrapolate out from there. How do they avoid that problem if they do? Do they pad out the packets with lots of junk noise or something? I know I'm not the most well-versed in the operation of encryption. So maybe this is a stupid question, but I'm, I'm curious how you clever security folks address this potential problem with a piece of what is, for me, everyday technology. Thanks if you do answer my question. I love the show and uh, undersign the rest of the blah, blah, blah. Keep up the great work and enjoy your new server hardware, Steve. You sound like a kid in a candy store and your enthusiasm is infectious. Bruce. Okay, so we talked about this things. some years ago. Yes, we did. And I thought it, we hadn't for a long yeah, time. Yeah, so an update. Just dip a li little into it. Yeah. So let's talk about wireless keyboards in general first. The very early wireless keyboards had ridiculous, quote, encryption, unquote. And you'll remember that all they did was they, they the, the, as you press keys, they sent out an 8-bit byte, which is the code for the key. But they said, oh, we don't want that to, you know, be easily readable. So we're going to XOR it with a byte. Now we showed we showed the graphic image last week or the week before I think it was last week where you XORed a, an image with noise and you got noise that's really good encryption the problem was the keyboard XORed every byte with the same byte that is it never changed so every time you pressed an E you got the same code. It wasn't the code for E, but it was a fixed code. And F was exactly one larger than E because it's ASCII. And so, so anyone who analyzed that stream, I mean, it'd be almost a nice, really amateur crypto prod problem for people to have. It's like, here's, here's someone typing something and we've XORed all of the bytes with a single fixed byte. Anyway, obviously weak crypto. Anybody capturing that could easily, by look at doing a frequency analysis, look at which characters are typed, which characters are, are in relation to each other, because it's not like there's any kind of cipher where, where each character maps to a different byte. It's that each character is just XORed, which means the same, and remember XOR is a certain set of their bits are inverted. Always the same ones, always the same way, every time. So that's the way it was. Now, but because that came to light, the manufacturers of the keyboard spent an extra three quarters of half a cent and increased the security of their keyboard so that it was good, so that it's now fancier security and we don't need to worry about it in you know, like, like when you buy a microsoft wireless keyboard or logitech wireless keyboard they've got good wireless security but none of that is bluetooth bluetooth um is a big set of standards and the answer to 
the anonymous person who we're going to call Bruce's question is that only in the instant of pairing of the Bluetooth keyboard with whatever device was receiving the keystrokes. I have a Bluetooth keyboard with my iPad, so maybe, and I, I love that little the Logitech. It's like it forms both a cover and a stand. Beautiful little keyboard for the iPad, and it's Bluetooth. Um, only during the brief event of pairing is there any danger at all from a man-in-the-middle attack and even then it requires some sophistication. So what we said years ago when we covered in depth Bluetooth security, we've got a podcast on that if anyone wants to get this in more detail, is Bluetooth has a known limited range of 30 meters. Thir- wait, no, 10 30 meters. Feet. 30 feet. Yeah. Right. Go out into the middle of an empty parking lot. <laughs> on a- You're safe. <laughs> <laughs> so you can see all around you, and you know that you don't have anybody within within 30 feet or 10 meters, pair your devices, and then you're fine. And also turn off discovery. Many people, it's, it's shocking how many people leave their Bluetooth discovery turned on. I'm pleased that my BlackBerry, that will soon be retired for a BlackBerry 10, uh, when you turn discovery on, it's always for a fixed oh, time. Yeah. It, it just should, it should, itself yeah, off. It should turn itself Yeah. Off. Yeah. So the answer is Bluetooth keyboards are secure. Um, only if you were really concerned would you, you know, need to even worry about that pairing event. But presumably you do that at home or, or somewhere. Um, and then from then on, they know each other. They, they, when they are paired, what that means is that there is a secret handshake that they had that established a shared key, which is never exposed only derivatives of that key are ever used in subsequent communication, and you are as secure as we know how to make you today. Question seven, Joe in Georgia. I was wondering when we'd get one of these, a universal plug-and-play question. Steve, I've enjoyed your discussions about UPnP and the external access issue. Quick question, can this be solved simply by creating a DMZ pointing to a non-existent IP? I seem to remember this was your advice when routers used to respond to ident queries, but I haven't heard anyone mention this workaround. Also, is there any risk creating a DMZ to a non-existent IP on my internal network? I don't even understand why this would work. Is there any risk of a malicious sender being able to do damage to other machines given that I've let them into the private side of the network? Really, a create so, a, a fake DMZ, in effect. Yeah, actually, that's been a solution for a number of router problems in the past. Because the uh, unknown traffic will just get routed to there. Exactly. People have had routers um, uh, where they were not stealth. One of the things that I did when I rewrote Shields Up, as I talked about a few weeks ago, was I created that notion of true stealth, where I have a big funnel, and while I'm working with the user, sending them probing packets of different kinds, I'm, I'm casting a net for anything that comes back as a result of the queries that I am making. And, and I let them know, like, what's the nature of what bounced back for any reason? And um, so there, there were people, for example, whose routers did not allow them to turn off ping, you know, and so that upset some people. Anyway, so a, an interesting solution which arose is to, to create a DMZ 
um, which is that it's a funky, I don't know why it's called, you know, I mean, what, for demilitarized zone. I'm not sure. Why, yeah, because term- remember during I mean, Vietnam, you know, there's like the, the place between your front line and the enemy's front line was the demilitarized zone. It was in between the actually two. it's the Romulan neutral zone, Leo. <laughs> I'm sorry. Pardon me. Yeah. Why don't we call it the RMN? I think we should. Ryan Z. Then we would all know what we're talking about. Um, so the idea is that anything not bound for a known computer hmm. behind the network gets sent to an IP that you establish. Ah. And you just set it to something impossible, something illegal, right. something not in your your normal DHCP uh auto-assigned address range, and it just kind of creates a black hole, which is, uh, which is a great solution. So yeah. that we did, we have encountered people who are unable to turn off universal plug-and-play. The reason I, I wanted to, I, I had this question is in case any of our listeners have routers where they were unable to disable universal plug-and-play as detected by, for example, my Shields Up system. We're up to now... 2,641 individual IPs have been found wow. uh, to be vulnerable. And it's re- the rate is really slowing down, which means that with, you know, the, the listeners within the GRC sphere, largely this podcast and friends of friends of the podcast, um, have checked themselves and know one way or the other what their, what their status is. But we're not seeing, uh, you know, lots more. I mean, you know, the number is apparently in the millions, wow. but we don't have millions of people coming by. Uh, so anyway, yes, the DMZ, setting up a router DMZ is a great solution for for solving the universal plug-and-play problem, um, routing port 1900 to a non-existent machine. And then, you know, GRC will show that there's no response from you. Good. Great idea. Clever. Yep. John in Sweden suggests a good answer for the anonymous email question uh, in 391, a couple episodes back. Hi, Steve and Leo. Insert gushing praise here. In episode 391, a listener asked about a free and anonymous email service. I think there's a great answer. Tormail.org, T-O-R, is a free and anonymous service that cannot give your information away because they don't know anything about you except for what you tell them. And since their servers are off somewhere in Onion Land, that's what Stan Stan, Tor stands for, the Onion Router, they are subpoena safe. Also, the problem Leo mentioned with exit nodes doesn't apply since it's a hidden service and you never exit Onion Land. Oh, that's interesting. What a good idea. Yes. One of the things on on my list of probably propeller head (laughs) episodes is is to describe the technology that Tor developed for offering services. Now, that's different hmm. than what Tor normally does. Tor is normally a client anonymizer right. where client users use Tor to hide their identity for their traffic that exits out onto the public Internet to prevent them from being backtraced back to home. Yeah. But the clever people who do Tor, I don't know if it was the EFF or whom, I'll, I'll find out and, I'm, and, and make the whole thing clear in a, in a podcast about it. They figured out a way to do the same thing for services so that you can, you can access a service 
through the layers of onion routing, get to a server somewhere, but no one knows where it is. So it hides the service, and you are hidden from the service. Oh, so, so it's mutual hiding. Very cool stuff. So uh, for anyone who's interested in exploring anonymous email, and remember, Tor is not super efficient because you're running through, you're bouncing through lots of servers. People complain about the throughput, but I think that's because they're trying to download movies and things. Yeah, but email would be fine for Email probably yeah. works very well. Yeah. So Tormail, T-O-R-M-A-I-L dot org. Uh, check it out. Um, I will, and uh, I will check it out, and we'll do an episode on how it's possible, what the technology is for offering hidden services, since that's very cool and not at all obvious how it would work. Yeah. Matt Buford in Austin, Texas, properly Correct, Steve, about the infeasibility of ISPs blocking port 1900. I'm a bit yep. behind in watching security now. I just came across you suggesting ISPs should immediately block UDP port 1900. Was that for the UPnP problem? Yep. Yep. Whoops. Please don't suggest that packet filters be put in place for ports above 1024. This is These are commonly used as ephemeral ports, and you'll block legitimate traffic by doing this. Of course, that's how FTP works, right? It just assigns a random port. Yep, yeah, and for, that's how, yeah. like, client... Well, I'll, I'll, let, I'll let him finish, and then I'll... Imagine I'll uh, my machine wants to send a UDP packet to someone out on the Internet, DNS, or whatever you want to imagine. It will pick up a random port at 1,025 or higher, maybe 1,900 as a source uh-huh. port. Many operating systems use 1,025 to 5,000. Sometimes people enable the entire range, which is, of course, 1,025 to 65,535. That's if they need a high rate of outgoing connections, servers, for example. Anyway, I'm able to send my packet out with a source of 1,900 and a destination of something else, say 53. The response then comes back to me with a source of 53 and a destination of 1,900, and your filter blocks it. Yep. If my OS uses 1025 to 5,000 as ephemeral ports and my ISP blocks packets to me on port 1,900, then one out of every 3,975 requests of mine will fail since I won't be able to get the response. I've found this problem on large networks more than once. People try to block worm ports or other things they think is bad on the Internet backbone and do so by just using ACLs to drop packets, access control lists, to drop packets destined for that high port. Doing this causes random connections in the other direction to fail. The number of failed connections is often low enough to not be very obvious to the average user, but having an Internet connection that fails on even one out of 655,535 connections would be a bad idea. Is it any better because it's UDP, Steve? No, he's completely <clears throat> right. He, his example is spot on. He he used the example of DNS, which is a, a UDP query. Right. But often is the case, actually, that DNS is sourced from 53 and so and aimed at 53. It's often a 53 to, to 53 port to port, mm. um, but doesn't have to be. But but his point is well taken. I I was aware of this weeks ago and just kept forgetting to remi- or to mention it on the podcast. So I, I when I saw Matt's posting, I thought, yep, let's uh, let's make sure we we acknowledge that really it is not safe to block for exactly the reasons he says anything over ten twenty four. ISPs, as we have said, are blocking, for example, 25 to keep their own customers from being spam generators. They are blocking, um, then that's outgoing 25. They're also blocking incoming 
packets destined to 135, 136, and 137, which are the old Microsoft NetBIOS ports. They're also often blocking 445, which is the newer version of Microsoft's uh, file and, and printer sharing uh, service to prevent the, those old problems. That's not a problem because those are so-called in, in the service port range below 1024. For example, when you go to Shields Up and you click on all service ports, that's the block from from zero, and I actually do check for, for, for port zero even though it's illegal, uh, up to 1024. That's the block that I that I check because those are where services run. And so exactly as Matt says, when you when you first turn on your operating system and it starts sending out queries, you if you look at netstat, which monitors the history of connections, you'll see 1025, 1026, 1027, 1028, it just marches right up using sequentially upward numbering ports until it gets typically to 5,000. There's a, a registry setting you can change to change the upper limit, but that's normally enough. Then it wraps back around. The reason that it, that it works that way is that that disambiguates incoming traffic. You've got traffic coming back that may be TCP and it may be for your IP, but the question is for which query or, or you know, like what is it coming back for? The only remaining way of separating many outstanding queries and replies is the port. So each successive query is on a succeeding numbered port. And exactly as Matt says, it's entirely foreseeable that you'd send something out on port 1900. So it would go out onto the internet. And when the query came back, it would be coming back to your port 1900, which is exactly the port that you, that Universal Plug and Play accesses on your router. And if the ISP were blocking it, you'd just get no connection. Now, the operating system would, would retry, and it actually would use 1901. It would go to the next port and try it again. So, you know, our our, our systems are robust around that, but it's still uncool. And he's he's absolutely right. The idea of this being done out on the uh, on the internet backbone just gives me shivers. Uh, that just that, that should never happen. Uncool, man. Yeah. Uncool. Question 10. James in uh, James S in Utah wonders if his shields are only somewhat up. <laughs> Thanks for the great Security Now podcast. I've listened to every episode at least once. I just replaced my router with an Apple Airport Express since the old Netgear is now in pieces in the trash. I wonder if he hit it. I think he probably hit it with, with a hammer. hammer. Once I set up the new router, I navigated the shields up and started pounding on the thing. Boom, boom, boom. The router responded to ping. Fail. And actively rejected UPnP probes, but everything else was stealth. Turns out. Apple will not allow us to turn off ICMP response on the WAN side of their airport of time capsule. Is that safe? Do I need to take my shiny new router back to the Apple store? I didn't know this. Yeah, this is a long-standing Other routers complaint. do that too, right? Because um, it, it's varied. I think I'm responsible actually right. for the 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 more standard, you know, Netgear, Linksys, uh, and so on routers disabling their ping response uh, because of shields up, frankly, and the idea that and, and people just wanted to be stealth. So first of all, stealth means it just uh, if, a, if a guy sends you a, a request, there's just any, no answer. Not yes, even a, appear, no, I don't. I block that port. Just nothing. Yes. 
And of course, I named it Stealth because of Star Trek and has, you know, related to the Romulan neutral zone and so forth. Well, there you go. Um, uh, so, okay, I don't want to alarm anybody. So, James, you're not, you're, you're technically your shields are not up in as much as you can be seen. That is, but, but all that somebody knows is that at that IP address, they don't know it's you, but at that IP address, which your ISP has probably assigned you and it flo- it drifts around every few months, there is something that re- that is there, and when you ping it, it says, yeah, and when you give it a UPnP probe, it says, yeah, um, but it's rejecting the UPnP probe, so it says, I'm here, but I'm not listening to these. Now, Notice also that if I had probed 1899 rather than 1900, 1899 would also reject. So the point is that it's not just 1900 that is rejecting an incoming UDP. It's all of your ports are rejecting an incoming packet. Um, and I'm just happen to, happening to check for for port 1900. So... If you wanted to be stealthful, you on an airport, you can do what we talked about a couple questions ago, which is set up a DMZ to a non-existent IP, to an IP in your network. So it's like, you know, 192.168. But normally your router will assign maybe like from 1 to 100. So set, set the DMZ to, you know, 111 outside of the auto assignment range so no machine will ever be assigned that ip yet incoming traffic will go there and when you do that you will be fully stealth so you can be stealth but you don't have to remember that all this tells anybody is some unknown piece of equipment is at that ip address um the the theoretical vulnerability is they they could like then try to dig deeper and do something to you but it's at this point it seems unlikely could you dmz it yes that does work that's clever i don't yeah. i don't know if i've ever seen dmz in an apple router i'm sure it oh has they must that. have it yeah, because have that's to. the only yeah. that's the only way to run a server behind right. your network in fact i should mention that's why the dmz was created not because of the romulans but because you want if you wanted to Allow if you wanted to serve something like your own little personal website at your IP, you inherently need unsolicited traffic. People you haven't invited by sending traffic to them, which normally means solicited traffic is coming back in response. But clients of servers are unsolicited by definition. So their traffic coming in needs to get to your server. So this DMZ is set up so that unsolicited, unexpected traffic coming in from anywhere goes is routed to that machine's IP where then it can decide what it wants to do with it. So I'm, I bet that the airport has to. Oh, yeah, you it know, does. It's it, in crazy. fact, uh, Mac Wright's telling me, of course it does. Ah, yeah. Uh, last question, our bonus round. Here we go. Q11. Jonathan in Toronto brings us the software utility suggestion of the week. Hi, I just came up with a new little utility I'd like to share. You mentioned a few new utilities a long time ago. Cat Mouse, among them. I love Cat Mouse. It's been great, aside from the middle mouse function that I would always have to disable on new installs. 
I also use auto hotkey. I like that one, too, to change my caps lock into control and to reverse mouse scrolling since my drivers don't have that feature. The scroll reversal would stop working at random times, though. Well, since I now have a keyboard with hardware control of control, with hardware control of control, of, 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 of oh, the, the control, control key, right, via dip switch setting, I no longer need auto hotkey or cat mouse. Welcome, Wiz Mouse. <laughs> Wiz Mouse, W-I-Z Mouse, by Antibody Software, has the familiar scroll anything like cat mouse, but also has the option to reverse scrolling. Super simple, just a few options, just what I need. Hope you find it useful. So I wanted to thank Jonathan for that. I've not looked at WizMouse, although I just did install CatMouse both on the server at GRC and on my new Win7 box I was building to set up a, a clone of IIS so that I can uh, do development and, and work here. Um, and you, listeners may remember what I, that what CatMouse does is it causes your mouse wheel to scroll whatever the pointer is over even if it doesn't have focus. So focus is when you click on the window and it you know darkens it and jumps to the front and so forth, which is normally the the what the mouse wheel will scroll. Even if you wander the mouse off of that to something else and you scroll the wheel, that other thing still scrolls. Cat mouse causes the the mouse wheel to track with whatever the the mouse cursor is floating over, which is really cool. Um, I'm still using it. I'll check out WizMouse. I don't have a problem with the scroll wheel being backwards because I like it the way my grandfather used it uh, instead of the way Apple has wrecked everything by thinking that I'm using a touchpad where I want, you know, to like push it on the on my Mac the same way I do on my tablet, which is not the case. I find that the wheel is backwards on my Mac. So I always, and they, and whenever I do a major update, I have to go in and, and reverse the, the direction on the Mac, but they do allow that uh, to be done. So that's cool. Anyway, WizMouse. So check it out. Good, good, good. And that concludes all 11 questions on this episode. Nicely done, right exactly on time and everything. Steve Gibson's at GRC.com. He didn't mention SpinRite. That's what I was waiting for. Spin right. Yeah, I knew we. I knew we were going to have a super. Oh, that's what you're waiting for. I knew we were going to have a super long one. We had a lot of All stuff right. at the top of the show, and I thought hey, everybody knows well, about Spin Right. Mention Spin Right. Get it. Give it a <laughs> World's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. You got to have Spin Right if you got a hard drive, and you can get it from Steve GRC.com. Make that yabba dabba do sound off in his pocket when you buy a copy of Spin Right. Re- really great thing to have. Uh, but while you're there, he also does so many other free things. In fact, you might want to test that UP and plea flaw using Shields Up. Uh, so many other things you can do there. Just go to GRC.com. He also has 16 kilobit versions of this show for the bandwidth impaired. And even transcripts if you like to read along while Steve talks. Thanks to Elaine. That's at G- <laughs> Elaine Elaine sent me a note when she transcribed last week's podcast. She said, it cracks me up so much hearing you describe what where I apparently live. Because we were talking about the, you know, she has bats the and, and the, There it is, right there. It's in the middle of nowhere is where she lives. She, she did actually send me a photo, oh. which I didn't, I didn't focus on, but I showed it to Jenny. And it showed snow on a cactus. Okay, there you that's go. There, uh, that Says sums it, all. it up. That does. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, grc.com. Also, if you want to ask a question for our next feedback episode, two episodes hence, you could do that there, grc.com slash feedback. Um, 
I think that's everything. We do this show Wednesdays, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 1900 UTC on twit.tv. Do watch live because then I can look at the chat room and, you know, add addenda from and the chat room. And we do have fun for the first 30 minutes, Leo. We, we ought to tell our live or our non-live listeners that we normally restart, get finally underway at about 1130. But, you know, we, we have fun for the first half hour. There's so. stuff going on. It's not like there just em- dead air. You no, get to watch the studio bit, set. You know, I'm I'm a little conscious of the fact that I can say things <laughs> that aren't going to be recorded for posterity. So, yeah. Oh, well, maybe not recorded. We can't yeah. promise that. People do record things, you know. Um, so that's why you should tune in. But if you can't make it, we make on-demand audio and video versions available as well. Just like Steve, uh, ours are a little higher quality at uh, twit.tv slash sn. And there is a YouTube channel now, youtube.com slash security now. Yeah, isn't that great? We'll bring you the videos. Yeah. If you want to watch the video on YouTube, that's good too. Okay, my friend, we'll do a full episode of some cool topic, whatever is next on my list or or happens in the meantime uh, next week. See you then. See you then. Security now.